Uh, introduce to you my friend, a mutual friend of Justin and, and mine, Jeremy Jones. Jeremy grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. He, uh, he went to college at Ole Miss, and I've forgiven him for that, and you should too. But uh, from there, he went on to Covenant Theological Seminary. He was a church planter for a number of years, six or seven years, I think. And he has most recently been serving as an associate pastor at Independent Presbyterian Church. Um, Jeremy, we're thankful that you're here uh, today. And I'll go ahead and invite you up to share, share God's Word with us. Thank you. Good morning. It's a real privilege and joy to be with you today. Um, it's fun when you see, when your friends uh, get to know each other. That's kind of what I, what's happened, what I see happening here. I knew, I've known Nathan for a while, a long time. Now I've known Justin more recently, been friends with them both, and now they've come together uh, in this way. It's really a special day. So thanks uh, to Justin, the commission, Nathan, elders, and to y'all for uh, having me here with you today. So our text is going to be out of John chapter 1, uh, six, starting in verse 6. We'll look at 6 through 8, then go to 19 through 37. And this is the part of the chapter uh, which is famous really for showing you Jesus as the Word, and it's one of the great texts um, about the Trinity and revealing the Trinity to us, God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And uh, Jesus is the Word made flesh. But right in the middle of it, you may have noticed this before, I don't know if you have, but right in the middle of when it's, when it's talking about Jesus in this incredibly exalted way, I mean, one of the most important texts in the whole Bible, it mentions John the Baptist. And it's kind of like, well, why is it talking about him? I mean, it's supposed to be talking about, it's revealing the logos who became flesh for us. It talks about John the Baptist. And then later in the, in the text, uh, after verse 18, it begins to talk about John again. There's something to this. Uh, then. There's something to this text about John, even in the midst of talking about uh, Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at today. It has special, I think, uh, relevance to us. So beginning in verse 6, John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. It's giving down to verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He said, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And I'm skipping down to verse 26. They ask him, okay, well, so if you're none of those people, why are you baptizing then? In verse 26, John says, uh, he answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. And then skip to verse 29. It says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, 
He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. Now the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for it telling us the truth about you and ourselves and for it recording this event and for teaching us about John. I pray that you would use this today in our lives to encourage this body of believers to feed your sheep, Lord, to call your strays home, that we might rejoice in you together. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So several years ago, I read a story about the king of imposters. His name was Frederick Bourdon. In Europe, he was known among the, the police and stuff as the chameleon. Um, he, he would impersonate teenage runaways and orphans. So he'd, he'd get online and find their names and their pictures and research their history and background, and he would kind of make himself over in their image. And then he would show up at a, at a school or an orphanage or a civil service thing for kids or whatever, or the church, and he would pretend to be this lost kid who needed help. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was impersonating these teenage runaways. He was assuming their identity, and then he would act out and act, act out that and perform uh, as if he was the person in whatever community he was in. Now, that's a that's a crazy story. It really is remarkable. But it actually, you may not believe it, but it does have relevance to us. Because we all occupy different roles in life, right? In family, at work, in the community you live in, and in the church. And that's particularly important in the church, right? I mean, as you are the body of Christ, you come together as Christ's people, and you're given gifts, and you're put in certain places and positions, and you serve. And that's what makes the church go. I mean, it's why you're here, right? It's why this church is here, is because you show up. And you serve in the nursery, and you're an officer, or you teach, or you lead a small group or host a social at your house, and y'all have been doing that, and you do it, I'm sure, a good bit. And it's a glorious thing. It's what we're supposed to be doing. But yet, see, there's a particular temptation that goes with that for us. A very specific thing this text help us, helps us understand. And it, when you, see, when you try to start to care for other people like Jesus, you can find yourself, you can end up trying to replace Jesus in a way. You're trying to be Jesus for people. Uh, we, we can forget who we are and our place and our role that we've been given and start to assume his. And start to sort of impersonate Jesus and try to rescue people, or play, you know, our word has his power or something, or we can heal or rule the church. And this is a huge problem in the church, okay? It's a temptation that all of us feel in some way. Uh, It it distorts our service. It it frustrates the good purposes that we're trying to pursue together. It saps us of, of joy, right? It makes us sluggish, makes us cynical, discouraged. It's a huge problem. And, but what this text, I think, is doing, and it's, 
this remarkable focus on John and the way it brings John to the fore, it's showing us how to avoid that in a very peculiar and interesting way. Uh, His example is teaching us this, and this is what we'll see today, that to serve Christ in our roles with joy and integrity, we have to remember who we are. Now, the way we do that is first, we need to remember who we're not. Um, This text is puzzling, I think, for us in some ways, because we don't understand the context in which it's happening, and what a big deal John the Baptist was. Um, If anyone was tempted to literally pretend to be Jesus, to pretend to be the Messiah, it was him. Um, He has an incredibly important role in history, right? He's the forerunner of the Messiah, uh, as described in in Isaiah 40. Earlier in John 1, it says he's sent from God to bear witness to the light in this remarkable way. Um, He's a prophet of the Most High, it says in Luke. He's also incredibly gifted. I mean, gifted doesn't describe it, right? When you read about him in Matthew 3 and other places, um, he's a powerful speaker, right? He's got a big personality people are drawn to. He's got charisma. He's a fearless leader. I mean, he rebukes these guys uh, from Jerusalem, these power guys who could have had him crushed. You know, he just rebukes them in Matthew 3. It's unbelievable. And, and to top it off, he's an enormous success. I mean, it says uh, in Matthew 3, 5, that all of Jerusalem and Judea and all these regions, all these thousands of people were flocking to this guy. And his job was to turn many to the Lord, and apparently that God's Spirit was moving in just that way. But this tops everything. Jesus in Matthew 11 says this. Among those born of women up to this point in history, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's, that's pretty amazing. This is like the greatest guy that ever lived, right? That's what he's saying. And so no wonder by this point, all of Israel, it says in Luke 3, was wondering whether he might be the Christ. I mean, they're literally going, yeah, I think he's the one. Or he might be, I don't know. Let's, let's figure it out. See, that's what explains this text. That's why these guys come from Jerusalem. And they, they don't ask him, are you the Christ? They say, who are you? It's wide open. Or he could have said, I'm John the Baptist from whatever, you know. But he says, I'm not the Christ. See? This was the question on everybody's mind. It was the great issue. And i got to tell you, I think that I've tended to look at this text Again, especially in John chapter 1, which is such an amazing text about Jesus and what it reveals about him and the Trinity. That's kind of an aside, and I've seen this, this question and the questions, kind of the interrogation scene, um, that's kind of an easy test for John, right? I mean, it's, are, you know, you're not the Christ. I mean, he knows he's not the Christ, and they ask him who he is. He just, all he has to say is, yeah, I'm not that, and I'm not that, I'm not that, right? Like, it's not a big deal. It's actually a critical moment in redemptive history. It's actually, I think, the test, it's the wilderness test of John himself. It's his temptation. It really is. Look at verse 20. And this is the gospel writer, John, describing the scene. It says, he confessed. When he was asked, who are you? He says, he confessed. And he did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. It's, it's, it's implying, I mean, everything's riding on what he's going to say here. And he gets it right. He denies it. But there's a ton riding on this. Uh, in verse 21 and 22, these these. Professional religious folks from Jerusalem come, representing the powers that be there, and they begin to interrogate him. And after, he, after they ask him the question about, are you, are you, who are you? He says, he's not the Christ. Well, then they start, well, what about the prophet? What about Elijah? They just keep pestering with these questions. Finally, they almost like beg him, well, just tell us who you are. It's almost like they're pushing or, or pressuring him to claim this. Just admit who you are. We know already, John, who you are, who you think you are. Just claim it. This is a great temptation 
in the Gospels, it's a key moment. And I think it's, it's nothing less than a satanic attempt to, to sort of frustrate God's plan by getting John to fall into the trap of thinking he's the Messiah and setting John up as like a rival Messiah to Jesus before Jesus even starts his public ministry. And you know, if you're in John's place, and you've had all the success, and I mean, you had a special birth, you know, that um, God's prophecies are about you, I mean, it would be tempting to think maybe, yeah, maybe I could be this guy. I mean, maybe I'm the, maybe I'm the guy. I mean, especially if Jesus doesn't show up or he's late, or he does show up and he starts disappointing you or doing stuff you don't really understand. Maybe he would start to think, well, I mean, Jesus is kind of, he's kind of meek, you know, sometimes. And I'm kind of this, I'm this bold leader. Like maybe he thinks I'm a, I'm a more powerful preacher than Jesus or whatever it is. And he starts to think, maybe I could run and rule this kingdom. Maybe I could bring the whole thing home, you know, for God and bring the day of the Lord about and uh, paradise would come to earth. It's a real temptation for him, but he doesn't fall for it. He refuses it. And the only way he does is because he remembers who he's not. And he says, I am not the Messiah. And he says it again in chapter 3. So what John refuses to fall for, he doesn't take the bait, we fall for all the time. We forget who we are. We forget that we're not the Christ. And we start to take on or assume his roles in ways that are really inappropriate for us. I know you're thinking, well, what in the world does that mean? I don't go around thinking that I'm Jesus, you know, or acting like I can raise people from the dead. Let me try to explain it. There was a, I read a story about a guy uh, riding in his car. It's kind of a little story he told. He's riding in the car at night with his son, who's really little, like two or three. And the dad sees a big crescent moon in the sky, you know, like a big, just kind of a sliver of moon, you know. But it's really big and bright. He says, hey, look at that moon. And his son uh, is used to seeing full moons when his dad says, look at the moon, right? That's typically what you point out to kids. Hey, there's this giant full moon. Look at that. Isn't that great? And so the kid looks and he sees what happened to the moon. Like it's, just, it's just like a big comma in the sky or something. And so the kid starts yelling, moon broke, moon broke. And the dad's like, oh, no, no, it's not broken. I mean, it's, it's this different kind of moon. He starts, you know, how do you explain it to a kid? And the kids keeps going, no, fix it, Daddy. Fix it. Fix it. Make it. Go there and fix it. Go there and fix it. And that's what we tend to do. We see something that's not right. We see something that needs fixing. We see a broken person. We see unmet needs. We see broken people. We see programs struggling. We see projects that need to be brought to completion and done well or and you have gifts and experience, and you have energy and drive to do it, which is all fine and all good. But the problem begins when we just naturally, or unnaturally because of sin, right, slip into the mindset, I can fix this by myself. And we start to think, oh, I can really make things happen in God's kingdom. I can fix this issue in the church, right? And that's a problem. It's a problem. And it produces this whole approach to ministry or service. And it can happen in any arena, by the way, any, any place where you have a significant role. Like it can happen in your family or work, but especially happens in the church. And it sort of looks like this. You become focused on the problem, right? Hyper-focused on it, lasered in on it. And what you can do about it. We usually get really busy, right? We kind of get obsessive about what we can do about this issue, and so we might spend 20 hours on a five-hour project, 
you know, stay up all night working on something, do it all by myself. Because after all, it has to be done right. You know what I'm saying? And so this, this is all us kind of assuming a role we shouldn't, assuming, taking on uh, messianic properties in our own service. We also do that by starting to take on the burden of ministry outcomes or results. And we, we delude ourselves by thinking we can actually make things happen or control reality or guarantee certain results. If I just do this, this will happen. Um, so I, and then you, if you take on that approach, your ministry is up to you, your service or role or whatever, you have to then try to make people do things. And I, I'm, you may know what I'm talking about. Like, I'm going to make them, I'm going to make this work, I'm going to make these people sign up for this thing. You know what I mean? You may not say that or think it, but you, we try to. Uh, we often try to, we do that with people sinning or struggling. I'm going to make them believe. I've got to compel them. And our words take on this force they shouldn't take with people. We get big, we get loud, we get pushy, manipulative, right? We're, we're cr- deeply critical, we complain a lot. And we become, in this approach, starts to taint our whole, all of our service starts to just get strange and weird. We're full of anxiety and anger while we're serving Jesus, right? And the results are pretty obvious. Uh, We wear people out. We burn them out. We burn ourselves out. There's tons of tension often when this is happening. There's drama. There's conflict in the church. There's broken relationships. Um, And even if we persevere in serving in ways which we often quit under this kind of burden we're trying to carry. Uh, if we, but if we do endure, we're just kind of joyless or sluggish, right, in our service. We've lost the joy. Uh, something we used to take so much uh, delight in, in playing this role, now just, it's just a burden, right? So what happened? What happened? We started thinking that our actions, our words, our labor, our hours of labor, our sacrifice could actually bring people to life, see, or bring order out of chaos, or compel people to turn to Jesus or go back to their wife, right, or obey. We started thinking we could do that, and we can't. We cannot. We're not the Christ. And if you're you're going to recover and inhabit your role in life, really in any way, you have to first learn this and always keep coming back to it. I am not the Christ. Remember who you're not. But the flip side is even more important. Remember who Jesus is because he is the Christ. That's the good news. He is the Christ. That's what you see, John, uh, what's happening to John in this text. He is remembering and seeing who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. So this is lots of stuff happening here. I don't have time to go into. There's, John clearly knows the Old Testament. He knows all these different titles and ways of speaking about the Messiah. And he, he mentions those a good bit, right? The word Christ means Messiah, the coming promised Redeemer. He talks um, about, um, uh, he quotes this stuff about, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness about the Lord's coming, right? So he applies all the, he knows all these categories. But what really, when it really clicks is when he applies, he sees that all these categories of the Messiah from the Old Testament are, are Jesus. They all meet in him. He's the one. And you can see that in verse 29 and following. And he sees a few things about Jesus I'll point out to you. What he's realizing is Jesus is this promised person. He is the one who's going to come and save his people and rule them so they have peace, Right? And in a few specific ways, he sees Jesus is the one that deals with sin. 
129, verse 29, it says, He saw Jesus coming, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's probably a reference to Isaiah 53, where it talks about the Lamb, the suffering servant, who's like a lamb who's going to be slaughtered. And Jesus is going to take away the sin of the world by dying on the cross, by atoning for sin, and taking the sin of his people, the guilt, on himself, and bearing it away, paying the penalty. He's the only one who can do that. He's the only one who can deal with sin, who can dethrone it in our lives or anyone's life. So he's the lamb. He's also the one who gives life. He's the only life giver. It talks a lot in this about um, this, when John baptized Jesus, and he's telling the story of that here, recounting it. He says he saw God's, like, like a dove, God's spirit come down and, and come on Jesus, but it says it, it came upon Jesus and remained. Remember, God has said, the one you see the spirit fall on and stay with, and it remains on him, that's, that's my son. That's the Messiah. Because as John later says, Jesus has the Holy Spirit, the life giver, the creator, and the recreator of life. Jesus has a spirit without limit. So Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to give life to anyone, to everyone. He's the one who brings order out of chaos. Jesus can do that by the Spirit through his power. He's powerful enough to bring the life we so desperately need and long to see in other people and in the church. And then finally, you know, there's a hint here that's actually much more clear in John chapter 3. I won't read it, but that Jesus is the one who rules and, and orders his church, right? Not us. Uh, in John 3, another little episode with John the Baptist, John the Baptist talks about uh, Jesus as the bridegroom. And the church, the people of God, are his bride. And in talking about that, he says, the one who has the bride, you know, who, who the bride belongs to, is the bridegroom. It's saying the church is his, right? It's not mine, it's his. It belongs to him and not me. So, he, he's, he's showing us the way we need to walk, right? He sees who Jesus is, and how does this all relate to serving Jesus? Well, at first, it corrects his own identity struggle, right, or temptation. He sees who Jesus is, and that tells him who he is. And that's the way it works with, that, with us. Uh, we'll never be able to serve Jesus appropriately. We'll always slip into either kind of despair, not serving him, giving up, or this kind of Messiah complex because of pride, until we see who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, and then that tells me who I really am. And that kind of identity correction is essential to serving him, to finding our role and playing it in the right way. It's fascinating in this text. Uh, John the Baptist talks a lot about Jesus, right? But when he talks about himself, he only ever talks about himself in connection with Jesus. See that? He never talks about himself just apart from Jesus or abstracted from Christ. So he's, he's the, who are you? He says, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, right? Um, 1, 26 and 27, he says, he's the unworthy forerunner of this worthy one who's coming. Verse 30, he's the one that ranks below Christ because Christ was before him and he pre-existent. I mean, he predated John not just, you know, not in birth, physical birth, but in existence. He was alive before me. And in chapter 3, again, we didn't read, John the Baptist describes himself as the one that sent before this one, and then beautifully. 
in the parable that he tells of the bride and the bridegroom, he says, he is the friend of, of the groom, right? He's the friend of the groom. And so when he sees the groom coming and, and marrying his bride and finding her and gather, gathering her to himself, that he's full of joy over that because he's the, he's the guy's friend, right? He only defines himself in Jesus. And that's what we have to do too. See, if you struggled in this area, you know what I'm talking about. Or even if you don't, and you come in here under some other burden that's crushing you, that's too big for you to carry, this is where you have to go too. It's where all renewal begins. It's saying, Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my Christ. He's Christ for me. And when he dealt with sin, and when he has the Holy Spirit, he can give through his power, give life to people. I need that. And you have to reclaim that or claim it to be able to serve him. Or else, you'll always try to be making your service and your role and your impact and the results of it and what you do define you instead of letting what Jesus did and who he is define you. And that's a beautiful, freeing thing, right? What is a Christian? A Christian is someone whose identity is bound up with the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's done the work I could never do to save me, to heal me, and now he's at work in and through me to serve and caring through me for people around me. That's what enables us to reclaim our role. I'm kind of finishing up here just to let you know, uh, but that's what you see happening in this text kind of finally. John, the Baptist, refuses the temptation to think he's the Christ. He remembers who he is, he remembers who he's not. And he remembers and sees Jesus as the Christ. That, that defines him, and it also defines his role. And you see him not just saying that this is his role, right, to be the witness to Jesus. You see him actually performing his role here. It's really amazing. Five times it says in this text that John the Baptist saw or looked at Jesus. And four of those times, he speaks about Jesus. And see, that's his role. When he sees Jesus and who he is in his glory... He automatically does his role, right? He speaks about Jesus. He witnesses about the reality of who Jesus is. And he tells people about him. He points to Jesus, right? He says he's got these followers, right? He's got all these disciples around him, and they're following him. But he says, look at that guy. That's the Messiah. He's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He points away from himself to Jesus, right? His ministry is not about him. It's not up to him anymore. It's all about Christ and him pointing to Jesus, and that's what I'm saying our role is. Whatever you do, whether it's speaking or teaching a kid's Sunday school class or demonstrating in some way the glory of Jesus and his love for people in the way you greet a visitor or whatever it is, that's our role. Witness Jesus and who he is in his glory and then witness about that to other people in deed and in word. Uh, John's story uh, is, is beautiful. Some of you may, may know that he does go through a, another period of, of temptation and doubt about Jesus when he's arrested. He's in prison in Matthew 11. There's a scene uh, of where he is struggling. And he, he ends up being martyred for his testimony to Jesus and his occupying his role faithfully. He's killed. But Jesus says some, another amazing thing about John, and John, uh, John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, 35. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist again, and he says, 
He was a bright and shining light. That's an amazing phrase. And, and so in John 3, and again, he's talking about the bride and the bridegroom. Uh, people have come to him and said, hey, all those people that used to follow you are, really, are now following that guy. Remember the guy you witnessed about? They're all following him. And you can tell his disciples are kind of mad about it. Like they're kind of disgruntled. And John's response is beautiful. He's free, see? He, he says, basically, well, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. I can't receive anything. I mean, we only receive anything from God. It's all by grace. It's all a gift. But he says, my job was to announce this guy, point to him, and, and I'm his friend. And so I rejoice when the groom comes and gathers the bride to himself. See, he fulfills his calling. He performs his role. He does it faithfully with joy. And friends, that's what God wants for you. That's what he wants for this church. That's what he wants for Justin. That's what he wants for no matter what your role is, he wants that for you. To be freed by him. Find yourself be defined by Jesus' work for you, not your work for him. And then serve him with delight, with glad abandonment, joy, and integrity. And let's pray. Risen Jesus Christ, Lamb of God, slain for us, full of life, full of all the forgiveness we need, the strength the hope, encouragement, would you come now by your spirit and through your word encourage your people and lead us to serve you with joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.